Hey, thank you, everybody. It's good to be back, a privilege to be here with you at First Church in Greenville, and uh, I'm privileged to have my wife Leah with me. We just celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary, and we're coping through COVID just like you. We, we go out to dinner a couple of nights a week, you know, a little candlelight, a little music. Leah goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. So, you know, we're coping with COVID. You got to do what you got to do, you know? All right. So, hey, before we get into the Word uh, today, I just want to really encourage you, commend you for a job well done. I remember my visit in January, and the Holy Spirit moved on your leadership team in a very powerful way, and God revealed to you his dream for his bride here at First Church in Greenville, and that being... Hope, what, changes everything. And then what should happen? Here comes COVID-19. And this church, bright light, uh, strong salt through this community and beyond, bringing hope to uh, frightened, broken people. So I just commend you. You are serving Jesus well. Job well done, but the job's not yet done. And I uh, am grateful that Tyson, in these recent weeks, has been preaching, for example, Daniel, and how Daniel was a man of prayer. Uh, Esther, and how she called people to fast for how many days? Three days. And when we fast, we're calling on the name of God. We're turning to God. We want God to intervene. So it's my privilege to pick up where he left off, and we're going to talk about prayer today. Now, young people, I want you to see something. This is very important. This is a camera, all right? This is a camera. And if you've not ever seen one of these, just ask grandma or grandpa to tell you about these, or mom and dad. Back in the day, this was a camera. Who made it? By any chance, anybody know? Kodak. These were Kodak cameras. You put a flash cube on top, you took a picture, and bam, that flash cube went off, and it even turned automatically, hence a cube. And uh, now, when there was an incredible shot of the family being together or maybe some mountains, we called that a Kodak what? Moment. That's right, a Kodak moment. And it meant it was worth a picture. Now, we're going to be in Scripture today at several what I call Kodak moments. Tyson looked at Esther. Tyson looked at Daniel. Today, we're going to look at the first church, first Christian church, Jerusalem. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2. As a matter of fact, D just used the very same text to set up the Lord's Supper for us today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Here's a Kodak moment. Turn with me in your Bibles, please. And we're going to pick up in verse 42. This is a paragraph that is pregnant with rich insight, rich insight. And we want the Holy Spirit to deliver what is in this text to us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was incredible. The first century church... And what we want to notice, first of all, verse 42, are what are called the four practices. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, what is that? 
the apostles' teaching was those men walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years. They had the Old Testament, what you and I call Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh. That's all they had. But now they had the teaching of Jesus. And the apostles were making that known, and the people wanted it. So then they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What's that? The fellowship is a word koinonia in Greek, meaning they were doing life together with one another, loving one another, praying for one another, serving one another, uh, forgiving one another. 53 one another's in the New Testament. That's how they were doing life in the deepest, richest of community. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What's that? When they would have a meal together in their home, with other believers, at the end of that meal, just like Jesus in the upper room, he took bread and he what? What did he do with it? He broke it and he said, here, take this. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. He took wine after the meal and he said, here, here's the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Okay, let me push pause here, time out, okay? Remember... We need to be more Pentecostal and less Presbyterian, okay? So you participate with me, all right? I give you permission in the name of Jesus. Speak up, all right? There we go. Okay, now let's push resume. So they broke bread in their homes. After they had a meal with one another, they took the Lord's Supper. They did that over and over and over again. They were devoted to it. And number four, fourth practice, they devoted themselves to prayer. They never stopped praying. They were praying constantly. Now, they devoted themselves. That phrase, that word, devoted in Greek, is a tense. That means over and over and over and over again. It means with zeal, zeal, with unrelenting uh, desire. They wanted to do these things. Now listen up, church. We are capable of devotion. All we have to do is look at our checkbook register and we can see what it is to which we're devoted. All we have to do is look at our calendar, and we can tell immediately what is it to which we are devoted. The question is, are we devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, doing life together with one another, the breaking of bread, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? We don't have to do that just on Sunday morning. We can do that seven days a week. We can do that with one another when we get together. We don't have a pastor leading us. Anybody can do that, a dad, a husband, a spiritual leader of a family. We should be doing that in our homes with one another. And are we devoted to prayer? We are capable of being devoted to prayer. Now, I'm going to focus on this hope of prayer that we have. When we pray, we find hope deeper than ever before. This is how we're going to approach this. We started wide. We're about right here. We're going to get here, okay? So stay with me. I'll let you know when I'm done. We're going to be right here. Think with me, anorexia. Anorexia is a disease, a disease in which somebody thinks they are grossly overweight, when in actuality, when in reality, they eat very little or not at all. I'm going to say that again. Here's the definition of anorexia nervosa. It's when somebody thinks they're grossly overweight when in reality they eat very little or not at all. There are three things that stand out about that disease. Number one, it's serious. So serious that complications of anorexia can take somebody's life. Those of us who are older, do we remember a vocalist who died of complications of anorexia? Anybody remember her name? 
Karen Carpenter died of complications to anorexia nervosa. Now, that was music back then, all right? Okay, enough. So serious, it can kill. Number two, it's impartial. Anybody can get anorexia nervosa, anybody. Not just women, girls, but men, boys can contract anorexia. Not just young, but people who are old. Not just Caucasians, but African Americans, Asians, Hispanics. Uh, not just uh, rich people, but poorer people. Not just people with a PhD, but people with a GED. Anybody can get anorexia nervosa. It is impartial. It knows no bounds. Stay with me. Number three, the good news is it's completely what? Curable. Completely curable. Listen to this phrase. With great effort, over an extended period of time, somebody can be completely cured of anorexia. They're not going to begin that first meal with a 28-ounce porterhouse with a baked potato, side salad, and dessert. No, they're going to start eating a little bit and a little bit more and then a little bit more over an extended period of time. They're going to be completely cured. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with prayer? It's kind of like the, the commercial uh, some years ago for Tide uh, uh, or Whisk detergent, laundry detergent. The commercial, if you remember, it showed a homemaker, long hair. She had sudsy hands. She was doing the laundry, pushing her hair out of her eyes, and she was washing her husband's shirts, and it says, oh, she's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets what? Ring what? Around the collar. Oh, those filthy rings. She's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets ring around the collar. That commercial inferred that you ladies do not know how to do laundry. That's what the commercial inferred. But the commercial needed to ask the obvious question, when is that guy going to wash his neck? That's the question it should have asked. Now, here's the question that we need to ask. What does this anorexia have to do with a sermon on prayer? Everything. After being a preacher for 40 years, I am convinced there is an anorexia of prayer. And what is anorexia of prayer? It's when a Christian believes he or she has a great prayer life, when in reality they pray very little or not at all. It's when a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus thinks he or she has a great prayer life, but in reality prays very little or not at all. And you want to know something about that disease? Number one, it's very serious. Number two, what do you think? It's impartial. And number three, the good news is it's completely what? Curable. Now we're going to unpack those three. You stay with me. We're about right here, okay? You stay with me now. And I hope that you will have ears with which to what? To hear. Because when we get here, you'll understand why this is so important. So, anorexia prayer, it's a serious disease. It's serious. Turn with me to a Kodak moment. 1 Samuel, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 12. And in 1 Samuel 12, here's the context. Always remember, you look at context before you look at the content of a verse or a passage. So the setting is, Israel has asked for a king. And Samuel is the last judge, the last prophet leading without a king. And God is upset. Oh, they, don't be upset, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. No, they have rejected me. That's the setting. So now here in chapter 12, 1 Samuel, he is going to give his farewell speech. 
And in that speech, embedded in the speech, verse 23, look at verse 23. He says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to what? Pray for you. See, Samuel says, I'm not going to sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. He nails it on the head. When we fail to pray, we are committing a what? Sin before God. And that's what makes this disease serious. Leah and I are from Indianapolis, home of David Letterman. Anybody remember David Letterman's show? On that show, he always had his top what? Ten list. David Letterman's top ten list. I'm here to tell you, God had the original top ten list. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet, and so on. That's the original top ten list. But nowhere on that top ten list do we see this sin. See, in our minds, we think sin in terms of the top ten list. Here, Samuel is clearly telling us that when I fail to pray for my wife, when I fail to pray for my sons, my daughters-in-law, when I fail to pray for my six grandkids, when I fail to pray for my president, my governor, my mayor, uh, senators, congresspeople, when I fail to pray for our military, fail to pray for my next-door neighbors, fail to pray for my coworkers, fail to pray for fellow people that I know, I'm committing a what? Sin before God. And let me show you how serious that is when that element is missing in life. Ten days before Christmas in 1967, the place was Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And at five o'clock in the afternoon, ten days before Christmas, there was a bridge there It was 300 yards long. It was painted with aluminum paint, and it was called the Silver Bridge. First bridge in America painted with aluminum paint. And the traffic was bumper to bumper on that bridge at 5 o'clock on December the 15th, 1967. And uh, eyewitnesses say that at 5 o'clock, there was a sound like that of a sonic boom. And all of a sudden, in a matter of just seconds the Silver Bridge collapsed into the Ohio River. And in that moment, 46 people were killed, trapped in their cars. Their cars were mangled in the wreckage. It was a great loss of life. The Army Corps of Engineers came in and they dredged that river a mile up and a mile down, taking out wreckage, trying to determine the cause of that great tragedy. And here's what they said in their final report. They said that that bridge that appears just like the other bridge near it in construction, at the very top of one of the arches there in the center of the bridge, a piece of metal about 18 inches sheared off, both pieces at the end. And with that Without that one piece of metal, two outer points sheared off and collapsed, and then two outer points collapsed, just like a snowball going down a hill, gaining speed, gaining size. In a matter of seconds, that whole bridge collapsed and went into the river, and 46 people were killed because one piece of metal was not in place. That is what it looks like when you and I fail to pray. It's then that marriages come to an end. And a husband and wife walk away from one another. It's then that a family is destroyed when prayer is not in its place. It's then that a church comes to a very grievous end. Four to 6,000 churches are going to close in America again this year. 
And I can tell you that one of the reasons why churches are closing is because they are not what? They're not praying. And I'm here to tell you that when prayer is not in its rightful place, there will be a collapse time and time again within that person's life or in the sphere of people around that individual. It's that serious. All right, let's go on. Stay with me. Anorexia prayer, thinking we got a great prayer life when in reality we pray very little or not at all. It's not only serious, it's number two, what? Impartial. It's impartial. Anybody can contract this disease. As a matter of fact, here are some Kodak moments. Let's go to Acts 19, New Testament, a Kodak moment. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul shows up in a place called Ephesus. Verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Ephesus was a huge city back in the day. And it was there, verse 11, that uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. The power of God was unleashed. People were healed. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So in that moment, Paul planted a church, first Christian church, Ephesus. And if anybody wanted to be a member of a church, it was this great, big, mega, mighty church where the power of God was unleashed. As a matter of fact, historians, New Testament scholars believe that Ephesus was second in size only to the church in Jerusalem. Now, Paul stays there for three years, and then he leaves. The Holy Spirit calls him back to the mission trail, and he hands the baton of ministry off to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he writes a letter to Timothy. Turn with me to another Kodak moment, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And right there in verse 3, Paul writes, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why would Paul have to say stay there? Because Timothy wanted to leave. Timothy was updating his resume and putting it out on hotjobs.com. He didn't want to stay. Why? Because Ephesus was a mess. It was already becoming a mess. Uh, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. Who were those men? Elders in the church. This young preacher had to confront the elders that they were false teachers. How do we know that? Because Acts 20 tells us so. Now, it's a mess so very quickly after Paul leaves. And here's what Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's Paul's to-do list for young preacher Timothy. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone. In other words, I urge you, first of all, that you pray, 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 and pray for everyone. Ink was a, a luxury in that day. Paper was a luxury. But the Holy Spirit is prompting Paul under the unction of the Spirit to write down, you got to pray, 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 pray. I see a lot of young people in the room. I can remember when our boys were growing up, Lee and I, we would say, we want you to clean, dust, sweep your room. We would say, clean your room in many different ways. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Same thing. I want you to pray, 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 pray. Because the church was a mess. This great, big, mega, mighty church quickly was diagnosed with what disease? Anorexia? A prayer. Thought they had a great prayer life when in reality they were praying very little or not at all. Fast forward just a few more years to Revelation chapter 2. Another Kodak moment on Ephesus. Verses 1 through 5. It's the first of seven letters that Jesus sent the church in Ephesus. And what did he tell them? Well, in the first few verses, he commended them. 
He gave them a commendation for work well done. But then in verse 4, he changes from commendation to condemnation. And he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your what? First love. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So in just 30 years, about 30 years from the time that church was planted, that church was a teetotal disaster because they had stopped what? Praying, loving God, turning to him, reaching for him, crying out to him. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. If it can happen to a first century church, it can happen to a church in the 21st century. It can happen to us. And why, and why does it happen? You know, just imagine if I had a giant crate up here and uh, we filled it with basketballs and we could see the top of the basketballs up here over the edge. Question, is it full? Yes or no? No, it's not. That's exactly correct. Because now we can put in golf balls and we can hear the golf balls falling down to the bottom and filling and now we can see the golf balls even spilling over the edge. Question, is it full? Yes or no? No, it's not because now we can go up to Lake Michigan and get truckloads of sand, bring it back and shovel it in and we can hear that sand filter to the bottom and that sand is now spilling over the top. Question, is it full? No, it's not because we can put a mesh over it and we can put the garden hose in it and turn on the water, fill it with water, displacing the air, and now it is full. We are always able to put something more in it, and that's a picture of our lives. We keep filling our lives with something or someone other than Jesus, and we push the life of Jesus out of our own lives. We got uh, places to go, people to see, things to do. We're living life at warp factor nine, and we have no time for Jesus. It is very easy for you and I to succumb to this spiritual disease, anorexia of prayer, thinking we got a great prayer life, when in reality we pray very little or not at all. But the good news is it's what? Curable. Here we go. We're about right here, okay? Stay with me. The good news is anorexia of prayer is completely curable. With great effort over an extended period of time, this disease can be cured. Remember Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus made a what? An effort. Here he is. He's the son of God. He's fully human, but while he's walking on earth, Colossians 2 verse 9, in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus was not only fully human, but he was fully what? Fully God. And yet, what did he do? He made a great effort. He set his alarm clock. He got up before sunrise. He went off to a place to be alone to talk with God. And yet, he's God. He's setting for us an example that we should do likewise, make an effort. We will never have a powerful prayer life unless we make an effort. You know, in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, another great Kodak moment, there was a man who had been born, what, anybody remember? Blind, born blind. Jesus spit on the ground, made someone, put it in the guy's eyes, and what did Jesus tell the guy to do? Go and wash, exactly. Go and wash. So the man went and washed in the pool of Siloam, and the text says he came back seeing. Here's a question. 
Could Jesus have healed that guy on the spot? Could he have said the word, thought the thought, clicked, snapped his finger, said, Shazam, you're healed? Could Jesus have done that, yes or no? Absolutely he could. But isn't it interesting that he, he says, you go and wash. Get that mud out of your eyes. Hold on to that. Luke 17, verse 14, another Kodak moment. Jesus encounters 10 guys. Lord, have mercy on us. What did they have? Anybody remember the disease? Leprosy, that's right. He says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Verse 14, as, as they went, they were cleansed. They were healed. Question, could Jesus have healed them on the spot? Thought the thought, said the word, snapped his fingers, said Shazam? Absolutely. But isn't it interesting? He required them to go and show themselves to the priest. He required the blind guy to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Here, here's the observation from those Kodak moments. Jesus required them to make an effort to receive the blessing. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, it says in Hebrews. Jesus doesn't change. What do you think? Jesus requires us what? To make an effort to receive the blessing of a powerful prayer life. Got to make an effort. We're living in a country today, a culture uh, with a cancer. And the cancer is that people want something for what? For nothing. It's all across America. It is rooted in the mindset of the American culture. People want something for nothing and they want it quickly. Give it to me now. And that cancer has metastasized into the body of Christ where we want something for nothing and we want it now. Well, I'm here to tell you, a powerful prayer life is not going to come that way. You know, on our phones, we have this thing called 911. In, in Indiana, now all of our counties have a high uh, classification of 911. If there's a crisis going on and you cannot speak, all you have to do, you can even speak it to Siri on the phone, dial 911. And immediately, our computers throughout the state of Indiana are tracking the location of that phone to the owner of that phone. They're going to know through the computer system the name associated with that phone number. They're going to know the address of that uh, person. And they're going to send fire, paramedic, police to that place of an emergency, the location of that number. But at least the person has to what? Dial. They might not be able to speak, but they have to dial up. God wants us to dial him. He's not going to put us on hold. He's not going to send us through to his voicemail. Jeremiah 33, verse 3, 333, easy address. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me, says the Lord, and I will answer you. I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. That's a promise on which we can stand. That means every time you and I cry out to God, he's going to answer us. It's a promise. Well, Gary, I pray so often, I, I never hear from God. Oh, I'm, I'm here to tell you, he answers every prayer. It says so right there in Jeremiah 33, 3. It's just that you don't recognize the what? The answer, because it's not the answer what? That you want. It's just that simple. We pray, and God answers. He answers us in a way that we do not want. So the key is, this is curable if we will make the effort. Now, I'm right here. Now, you stay with this is why we got to conquer this disease. I cannot tell you if you suffer with it or not, no more than you can tell me if I suffer with it or not. All of us have to self-diagnose. 
Just like we get up of a morning, we self-diagnose. Oh, am I running a fever? Oh, do I have an upset stomach? Oh, do I have a headache? We self-diagnose our health every morning, every day, throughout the day. We need to self-diagnose right now, am I struggling with anorexia prayer, thinking I got a great prayer life when it sucks? You determine right now in your life, as I determine in my own life, what is the state of your walk with Jesus in this regard? And here's why this is essential. I'm going to close with these few thoughts. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. We are in a battle. Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says, your struggle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. Our struggle is not with Antifa. Our struggle is with rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter said, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's very crystal clear. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Your enemy the devil People of Antifa or other uh, like mindset. What has happened? They have fallen under the influence of who? The evil one. And it may be that you and I have loved ones who are walking away from the faith. They're not the enemy. They have fallen under the influence of the evil one. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your what? Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. There are many people who do not guard their interior world. I'm not talking about health, uh, heart disease physically. I'm talking about it spiritually. So what you and I have got to understand here is we're at war. Jesus in John 10.10 10, said the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The thief, Satan, has come to kill, steal, destroy. And Revelation 12 Incredible passage. That passage is about the grave of Jesus where Satan could not keep Jesus buried. It was a battle raging in heaven. He did all that he could to keep Jesus in the grave. It was his last attempt to thwart the plan of God, and he couldn't. Because right there in verse 10, now salvation has come. And when did salvation come? At the cross of Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, it says, Woe to the earth, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. You see, he knows that his days are numbered. And what is he going to do? He's going to wreak as much havoc as he possibly can, not only in a nation, not only in a world, but in your life personally and in mine. So he has come to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to destroy this church. He doesn't want you bringing hope to anybody. And he's going to pull out all stops to destroy this church. He's doing that all across America, whether through apathy, complacency, or through disunity. People fighting and fussing and arguing with one another. Uh, one of our partner churches is in a community where one church after another has split in asunder because of disunity in the body of Christ. Where does that bring uh, honor and glory to Jesus? Satan is having a heyday. And he wants your marriage to come to an end. Kill, steal, destroy. He wants to destroy your marriage, destroy your family. He wants to destroy your health. He wants to take you out. If you and I knew that somebody was breaking in our home in the middle of the night through the back door, they're coming in to steal and destroy what we have, maybe even kill us, what would we do in the middle of the night? We would probably get up and defend ourselves. We would defend the people that we love in that home, right? If we had somebody like that coming to kill, steal, destroy, 
Why don't you and I wake up and understand that that's happening every day, 24-7, 365. The enemy wants nothing more. He knows that his days are numbered, and he wants to take out as many people as he can before Jesus splits the clouds and comes again. We have got to pray. You see, if a, a, a thief is coming into my house, I can shoot a thief. But I can't shoot a gun at Satan. He's in a spiritual realm, but he is more than real. And you and I have got to understand our principal weapon against him and take with you the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? The Word of God, the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. It's right there, chapter 6, Ephesians, verse 17. Paul tells us plainly what our weaponry is. And if you and I are not praying for our children, our grandchildren, for one another, our nation, for our elders, our staff, I'm here to tell you, Satan, we're just giving him a, a red carpet welcome into our lives. So turn with me to Psalm 127. This is my last Kodak moment. It's my last Kodak moment, and I want you to see this. Psalm 127 is a very important text. This is why this, this is so critical today. And every one of us as parents and grandparents, you, you make sure you give me your attention right now. In verse 3, notice what it says. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children, sons and daughters, a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior... Our sons, our daughters, born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, a lot of people look at that and they've thought over the years, oh, this is all about having 10, 12, 13 kids. Got to have a quiver full of kids. Got to have as many kids as you possibly can. That's not the meaning of this text. That's taking it completely out of context. See, the context here is war, like arrows. What's an arrow? A weapon. In the hands of a who? A warrior. That's a weapon. Notice the last sentence in verse 5. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. These sons, these daughters will not be put to shame when they contend, when they fight. That word fight, uh, contend in Hebrew, means to fight. Contend with their enemies in the gate. Where was the city most vulnerable? At its gate. If the gate could be breached, you could get into the city and take everybody out. So that gate was the most vulnerable spot for battle to take place. Now, let's put the right context in here. That warrior does not collect arrows in his quiver and dust them off and go, hey, look at my arrow collection. Is this not incredible? No, a warrior would take that arrow out and shoot the arrow, uh, sending the arrow where he, the warrior, could not go. And what this means to all of us who are older we must do all that we can to send the next generation to accomplish for Jesus what we only dreamed of doing. So every child, every grandchild, everyone of the next generation, we should want them to do more for the glory of God, fighting the kingdom of darkness, than we ever hoped or dreamed of doing. And to that end, we have to pray militant prayers over them, for the Lord to protect them, for the Lord to empower them, for the Lord to just uh, fall in love with them and they with God. To that end, A, an act of prayer life. A, adore God, praise him. Make sure that during the course of the day, you and I are praising God. Praise him for all that he has done. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, O my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, 
O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. C, confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. You and I have got to come clean with God every day if we want to be in the right place. T, we, we need to thank him. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. We have to, I, intercede, pray for one another. It says that in the word, pray for one another. By name. And V, vanquish. Pray against the kingdom of darkness. Literally. There is a spiritual realm. Hebrews 1.14, it says that uh, are not angels, all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. There's not a day that goes by in my life that I do not pray vanquishing, conquering prayers against darkness. I pray that over my grandchildren, over and over again, God dispatch legions of righteous warring angels to protect my grandchildren from the attempt of the evil one to take them captive. Protect my son's marriages against the evil one. That both of my sons and my daughters-in-law will be ever uh, faithful to one another and to you. Keep darkness from them. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right from the Lord's own mouth. Are we praying militant prayers against darkness? And E, asking extreme things of our extreme God. We pray Mickey Mouse prayers. Oh, God, bless the missionaries. Amen. That's a Mickey Mouse prayer. Ask great, mighty, incredible, powerful things of our all-powerful God. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus and 7, Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, 7. He wants us to pray, asking great things of our greatest of God. So make sure that you and I are responding to this. Henry Ford... Charlie Steinmetz were buddies. When Charlie, uh, or when Henry was building the first automotive plant in Dearborn, Michigan, he hired Charlie Steinmetz uh, to build and design the first generators that would power that plant. One day the plant went dark, the generators went down, and the maintenance workers couldn't figure it out, so Henry said, you better call Charlie, get him over here real, real quick because time is money. So Charlie came in, he tinkered around for a few hours, he threw the switch, and the plant roared to life. And uh, Charlie sent Henry a bill for $10,000, a princely sum in the early 1900s. And uh, Henry, who liked to rub two nickels together, took a pen and he wrote, Charlie, isn't this a bit much for a few hours of tinkering around? Question mark, H. Ford. Gave it to the courier. The courier took it to Charlie. Charlie opened the bill, looked at it, read Henry's note, wrote a new bill. For three hours of tinkering around, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Total due, $10,000. And Henry paid the bill. The Holy Spirit is tinkering right now. He's tinkering in your life and in mine about this thing called anorexia of prayer. And he who has an ear, what? Let him hear. Father, in this moment, we come before you and we ask by the power of your spirit, 
put a hunger, a thirst, an ache in our heart to draw near to you, knowing that you will draw near to us. We stand on that promise of James 4, verse 8. And I pray, Father, that you will protect your bride here at First Church, Greenville, Illinois. You'll protect every elder and every elder's wife, every person on staff, their spouses, their children, that the evil one could not in any way even approach this bride, that you, Jesus, throughout the day and throughout the night, you would shelter the bride of First Christian Church from any attempt of the evil one to kill, steal, or destroy from this family of God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you revive every believer who hears this message. That prayer would become a passionate discipline every day of their lives. That every man would begin praying over his wife and his children, his grandchildren. That every woman would begin praying over her husband, her children and her grandchildren, that every person in this place would begin praying for one another and asking you to do the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. It's in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer, and together we say, amen.